Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, everyone. It's Pacific, and welcome back to Out of Place. Just a reminder, in case you missed last week's episode, uh, this is our second-to-last episode and next week will be our grand finale. If you like the show and you'd like to hear more of it, please make sure you leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That is not only the best way to get our show into the ears of new listeners, but it also lets us know what you like and what you don't like about the show. And, of course, coming this December is an all-new miniseries from Ben Counter, set in the SCP universe. It'll be airing on our sister show, SCP Archives, and if you like Ben's writing, I think you'll like it too. It's an incredible horror story about a Slavic goddess in the Montana wilderness, and uh, it's wonderful. But with all that said and done, enjoy this week's episode. There's a strange feeling in the project. Stranger than usual, that is. In the office here, we only hear bits and pieces of what the other departments are doing. Ops is sending teams here, tech is reverse engineering this, the project board has decided that. It could all be misinformation to stop us looking in the right direction, but nevertheless, there's a sense of things changing. The security guys are being switched out every couple of days. And logistics says there's equipment and fuel being moved all over the project sites in New Mexico. Rico sees most of what goes through logistics and he swears the trucks they've got heading to the plant south of us are built to carry something radioactive. I don't know what'll happen to us when the project completes their great work. Their perfect world. I hope they'll take us all with them, but who knows? It's not like we'll have anyone to complain to if they don't keep their word. Will Director Beckman and the Project Board just swan out of this world and into their new one? What will they leave behind? 
maybe no one will ever know what they did. Maybe they can rewrite this timeline so none of us remember the project existing at all. It gets complicated. There's a whole department of mathematicians somewhere who work it all out. I don't envy them that job. Maybe there won't be anything left of the project at all, at least in this world. Or or maybe there'll be a scar on this earth that will never heal. Sometimes we wonder what we will leave behind when we're gone. For everyone on the project, I suppose, we won't have to worry about leaving no legacy. Either we're a part of something truly immense, or we will never have existed. Big thoughts for a Wednesday morning. Whatever the project's gearing up for, it doesn't stop the data coming through. The field team was sent out again, and I wonder if they're back into the rhythm of running intelligence missions with Quintero gone. I have to read between the lines about things like that, and there are no notes of counselling sessions or psychological monitoring. I just hope Extant isn't working them too hard too soon. The target this time was a mess of a world. A version of Earth where something very awful and very obvious had happened. There was so much of it that tech guys had difficulty sifting through all the anomalies. The world map looked the same as our timeline, but after some catastrophic event that hit everywhere at once. There had been conflict in most of the major cities with large swathes of destruction. Most of the broadcast spectrum was quiet too, and the only lights were from huge fires still smouldering in the worst-hit cities. In other places, buildings had been demolished and other structures put up in their place. Enormous fields of irregular buildings with no pattern or purpose. The probe's images were mostly obscured by smoke and it was tough to work out what any of it was. One image was isolated by Extant's tech team and blown up. It was of a human shape lying in the forest outside Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. It was broken off at the ankles, suggesting it was originally standing. If so, it would have been well over 200 metres tall. After this, some of the other anomalous structures were also identified as colossal statues. There were thousands of them, all over the world. Elsewhere were the signs of large-scale evacuation of cities and long caravans of escaping vehicles, abandoned or destroyed in their thousands. Charred ribbons of scorched metal covered sections of freeway tens of miles long. Temporary tent cities were burned or left to fall apart. Rafts of dozens of ships lashed together were adrift on the world's oceans. But the probe found no sign of working vehicles, or of obvious human activity at all. It was a violently, bloodily depopulated world, and its scars were deliberately inflicted. Several target sites for the field team were identified. One was the default location of New York, but the city was obscured by a pool of smoke that made it impossible to guess what the team might find there. Atlanta, a backup target location, showed no obvious anomalous structures and had been largely destroyed by fire. Other candidates included Moscow, where the center of the city had been completely cleared and paved over, and a region of the Himalayas where statues were carved out of the faces and peaks of the mountains. The final decision was made to send the team to Dar es Salaam, where the fallen colossus was located, along with fields of dozens of similar statues outside the city. The team reached their destination outside the city within 50 metres of their target. The equatorial climate was extremely hot and humid to Private Sandwich's vocal dismay. Approaching the statue, they found it made of concrete around an iron frame, badly damaged from snapping off at the ankles and falling to the ground. 
The statue was face down, but the parts they could see were of a man with a stern, middle-aged face, a beard and moustache, and receding hair. He wore military webbing and body armour under a floor-length robe. The statue's size was such that Sandwich remarked he could have eaten the Statue of Liberty. The statue's base, a square two-storey building, still had the statue's feet on top. The south wall of the base was inscribed with the name Soledad. The team moved into the city, noting how much of it had been systematically demolished. They passed through a lower-income district where the housing was poor quality and saw much of it remained, albeit abandoned and degraded by time and neglect. More substantial buildings, however, appeared to have been completely dismantled, leaving footprints where even the foundations had been ripped out. One anomaly, noted by the team, was the number of advertisements and notices in Japanese, Mandarin Chinese and Hindi. These were present in similar numbers to those in Swahili and English, the two most common languages in our Tanzania. The inner part of the city was dominated by groups of statues. Their heights varied, with the tallest being the size of skyscrapers, and others standing in groups of a dozen or more several stories high. A warrant officer Poulter photographed them extensively. They were of varying materials and types of construction, but all had the same basic form as the colossal statue outside the city, a bearded and stern-faced male figure wearing a long robe over military gear. The team speculated the statues were built from materials cannibalised from the many demolished buildings. A theory was backed up by later analysis of Poulter's photographs. Sergeant Brand had the team advance to the closest statue group, Four statues of the same height arranged in a square, located closer to the city centre and port of Dar es Salaam. Here the buildings had all been partially or completely demolished, with the city made up of ruins, statues both completed and in the process of construction, and heaps of building materials. Even the foundations of many buildings have been excavated for materials, resulting in broken and treacherous terrain alongside the still-existing city streets. Reaching a square encompassed by the statues, Brandt spotted contacts ahead and ordered the team to spread out into cover. They took up positions among heaps of salvaged steel while Poulter sent a photographic drone to scout ahead. The drone sent back images of around a thousand people standing in rank and file in the square. They were all motionless, with their heads bowed. Their clothing was of varying styles, but they all had a dirty and dishevelled appearance. A few of them had collapsed, and still lay where they'd fallen, evidently ignored by the others. Poulter flew the drone lower over them, but they did not react to its presence. The team approached the group and saw they were still unresponsive. They represented a mix of ethnicities and ages and appeared in a fugue or comatose state. Private Sandwich pointed out they all had a similar scar behind the left ear, some of them well-heeled, others recent. These resembled surgical scars rather than from trauma. While examining this unresponsive group, the team heard sounds of construction from further towards the city centre and proceeded to investigate it. The source of the noise was within the bounds of the port of Dar es Salaam. The cranes and other equipment used in the port had been repurposed for building the monumental statues, and several docked ships were loaded with construction materials. The building was being performed by a group of several hundred people, hauling materials, welding and otherwise working on the foundations for yet another statue, this one on the scale of the one fallen outside the city. The statue base and lower legs had been completed along with the hem of the robe. 
Though the work was noisy, the workers themselves were completely silent and worked in concert without any apparent communication. The team circled the site and saw the name Soledad inscribed on the side of the statue base facing the sea. Other vessels on the ocean had foundered and partially sunk. In places, artificial islands had been created with more statues on them, again facing out to sea. Most of these had partially sunk or collapsed. Brandt led the team further towards the city centre, the administrative region of the city by the coast. They passed a worker who had been killed by a piece of steel falling from the partially built statue and noted it had been there for some time without being cleared away by the other workers. The body had the same scar on the back of the head and the workers the team passed close to appeared to have it as well. One of the partial buildings near the city centre was a medical facility. The front wall had been demolished, revealing a partially intact lobby with a marble floor and reception desk. Signage on the front read, Dar es Salaam Neurological Improvement Center, in several languages. Some advertising images remained on the walls inside, one showing the silhouette of a human head in profile containing the symbol of a globe and the words, The World Inside Your Head. Another, partially burned, depicted a tiny microchip resting on the tip of a finger to illustrate its size, labelled the revolutionary NEC 1500 Hekima. It was while exploring this building that Private Sandish glimpsed someone moving down the street past the building. It was a woman, wearing several layers of salvaged fabric, hauling a cart loaded with canned food and other salvage. She did not have the slow, laboured movement of the workers at the harbour and appeared to examine her surroundings closely, as if expecting danger. Sergeant Brand called out to the woman from cover. She took a semi-automatic rifle from her cart and took cover in turn, yelling back in several languages before calling for Brandt to identify himself in English. Brandt claimed he and his squad were American troops who'd come over the border from Kenya, the country to the north. The woman shouted back to the effect that she did not believe him. Brandt stepped into the open, ordering Sandwich and Poulter to cover him, and assured her he just wanted to talk. The tense situation was diffused when Brandt left his rifle behind and walked into the street. The woman allowed him to come closer, and he could see she was weathered and thin, possibly malnourished. It became apparent she spoke good English and the two were able to converse. She claimed her name was Magdalena Kamanya, and she was a native of Tanzania and lived with a group of what she called meatheads, south of the city. Brandt believed her to be educated and intelligent, though separated from civilization for a long time. She had come to the ruins of Dar es Salaam to scavenge for food, clothing, and fuel. Brandt asked her to treat him as if he were an alien and described how the city and the world had come to be in its current state. Though Magdalena was confused by this, she described recent world events in response to Brandt's prompting. It was big in China first, I think. That was where it was invented, anyway. Took off slowly. People didn't like the idea of having things inside them at the start. But they were just so damn useful. Everywhere you went, it was there. You could just think it, and there it all was. TV. The internet. Then they made it so you could buy things with it. Have details about everything just pop up right in front of your eyes. 
The real change was when they let them communicate with each other directly. You could think at someone and the message would appear in their head. That was the difference. It changed the way people communicated. They didn't have to speak. They couldn't be misunderstood. Language didn't even matter. Not that it had before with these things translating everything as you heard it. It was a microchip in your head. I don't know anything about how it worked. My family was one of the ones that wouldn't get it. My father was religious. He would talk about the mark of the beast all the time. He thought it was a sign of the end times. I have to wonder if he was right. Everyone else was getting these chips implanted. First the cities like this one, then even out in the villages. They would drive there in trucks and you could get it put in right there in your house. The government helped the companies that made the chips so everyone would get implanted. If you didn't have one, you couldn't talk to the people who did. Not like they could. We were like, not human. Shut out. We formed communities of our own. Religious people, paranoid people, a few people the chips didn't work with. We were sad, strange people who lived out in the middle of nowhere like medieval peasants while everyone else was becoming a kind of hive mind, maybe. The chips got better and better. People could use them to be smarter now. Then there was a man called Solitad. I heard he was from Southeast Asia somewhere. The Philippines, somewhere around there. Of course, people were worried these chips could be hacked, but the maker said they couldn't be. Now and again, someone found a way to hack into them, but the ways in were closed right away. But Soledad was the one who worked out how to hack them all at once. He got all the networks that connected them. Everyone who was connected everywhere. Nobody knows how he did it, or if they did, they're long gone. This soldad, whoever he was, took them all over. I don't know what percentage of the population were connected. More than half. Soledad used them to get what he wanted. Not entirely sure what that was. To be worshipped, maybe. To be the most powerful person in the world. He had everyone build statues for him. That's how we all know his name, because he put it on the statues. It's his face you see all over this city, and all over the rest of them too. He had them build more, and bigger. His workers pulled down buildings to get materials for them. They still weren't enough. He wiped their minds, so all they did was work. I guess it was never enough for Soledad. They're still building them for him. Either that or he's dead, and they're just doing whatever he told them to do last. 
The only people left that can think are the ones who never got a chip put in their brain. The meatheads. There aren't enough of us left to start over. Maybe we'll keep a couple children alive, but they won't be able to be Adam and Eve. You need more than that to make more generations. So, we just scavenge what we can and keep living. Except when we get bored of it and walk off into the distance until we die. I don't hate Soledad. I know at the beginning we were talking about hunting him down, but no one knew where he was and what would be the point. The damage was done. Everyone was gone. Soledad's dead or crazy. There's nothing any of us could do to make it all right. So that's what's left. Brandt gave Magdalena some of his bottled water and ration bars, and she continued on through the city. He considered the team's primary mission complete and led them back to the capsule location. Though they'd not experienced any hostile action from the drone-like statue builders, he led the team away from any activity, just in case. There are parts redacted from the recordings and debrief transcripts I received, specifically about the journey back to the capsule. The material I have suggests it was uneventful, but something is missing. I can make some good guesses about what it is, but I shall keep them to myself for now. The team returned to the capsule and successfully transitioned via dimensional breach back to this timeline, within 15 minutes and 40 meters of their expected return point. It seemed, at first glance, complete stupidity to link our minds up in a way that means we could all be compromised in the same way at once. Thinking about it, I was too quick to condemn. The people of that world were faced with a choice, a risk-reward equation. The risk was the probably tiny one that the technology they were being implanted with could be taken over by a madman. The reward was to completely change what it meant to be human. Instant thought-level communication would make us a fundamentally different species. So much of our civilization, our technology, our actions we all take every day are in aid of communicating with each other. The need to communicate is hardwired into us to the extent we become ill if we don't do it. Our world didn't invent flying cars or robot pets, but we did make a tiny computer we could use to text or talk to anyone, wherever we are. If we had a way to be even more connected, to make it as instinctive as thinking, why would we ever choose anything else? What do I tell the board about this one? Stay away from brain chips, I suppose. But if they can connect us so fundamentally, I might as well be telling them not to be human. And if the redacted portions of my data confirm what I suspect, it will be doubly pointless. Compartmentalize the network so they can't be taken over all at once, perhaps. Or maybe it's more relevant to say, watch out for hackers who are both brilliant and deeply inadequate. It's in the personality of Soledad that the timeline's end really lay. The technology was just the vector he used to express it. We need to communicate, but we also need to be superior. 
We're driven by a desire to put ourselves one step higher on the totem pole than the next man. Soledad saw a way to do this and ended the world in a futile attempt to make it happen. The two needs, to be together and to be dominant, crashed into each other with such pain and fury that it ended the world. Perhaps that downfall is written into all of us. The power to affect everyone at once inevitably leads to everyone's destruction. And perhaps I'm being cynical. And certainly wouldn't be out of character. The word around the campfire is, the project is up to something big. Between those two primal needs, to communicate and to dominate, I don't have much doubt which one is motivating them. Out of Place was written and created by Ben Counter. Sound design and music was done by Dana Creesman. Our editor was Daisy McNamara. I'm your producer, Pacific S. Obadiah. Andrew was Ben Counter. Magdalena was Antoinette Barry Snowden. And this is a Midnight Disease production. For more information, visit midnightdisease.net. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.